Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Today is the day the controversial eviction ban expires. There are record numbers of homeless people and record lows of properties to rent. We're expecting to see a very significant increase in the number of people presenting to our services. We would encourage... But the government insists to delay the lifting of the ban would ultimately make the supply crisis worse. The reason why I've taken this decision today and why government have taken this decision is that a further intervention in the private rental sector will lead to further reduction in the capacity within that sector. And on what basis are so, you making that? A rancorous debate took place in the Dáil this week as politicians play the blame game. De- De- Deputy! Thanks. Thanks. Don't wag your finger at me. Don't wag your finger at me and stop objecting to homes in your Minister Harris. Minister Harris. In a country where property has traditionally been seen as a route to financial security, Landlords and renters are on a collision course of competing interests. Some landlords have taken on a property to supplement their pension mm-hmm. because they may be working and, as a tradesman. And tradesman. if market conditions mean that they lose money, tough. That's the way it works. But you wouldn't open a shop to lose money and keep it going. Some landlords are under huge financial pressure. But are the rest of us standing idly by as human tragedies play out? The housing situation is going to be this generation's church scandals, mother and baby homes, all these things that everybody pretended they didn't know about years ago. And we look back and say, how did we not do anything about that? How did we not see that? I'm Aideen Finnegan, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the eviction ban is lifted. Now what? Patrick Frain, features writer with the Irish Times, you've been speaking to a number of people who are either directly affected by the eviction ban or working in services to support people who will be affected by the ban being lifted today. Some of them, I'd say, you know, could be classed as vulnerable in that they're elderly. You met some people at a Raise the Roof protest outside Leinster House. And I think you spoke to two women who were worried about their mothers losing their home. What was their situation? I met a family who had homemade signs and they were at the Raise the Roof protest last week outside the Dáil. It was Eileen, who's 80, um, and her daughter, Rachel, and her son-in-law, Fanor. They all live together. Um, They have until, I think, halfway through April before they have to leave their home. I think it's very striking um, at how old 
Eileen is to be facing a situation like that. Rachel also has chronic health difficulties. Fenora is the only person who in the family who can work. And he just got a new job in Dublin. They were renting an Arclo. And now he's not even sure if he can do that job because he has no idea where they're going to be in like in a month's time. I spoke to another woman about her mother who is 63 and has lived in about three different places over the last three years. It wasn't their real names because there's a lot of stigma around this stuff. But um, Leila was talking about Angela, her mother. Those are the names we used. And um, her mother is very vulnerable, um, scared to even challenge the landlord in anything. Ever since the eviction ban came in, she was saying that the landlord complains every time he has to deal with Angela that she is still there um, because the eviction ban didn't allow him remove her from the place. Everyone tells me that when you email about properties you might see in Daft or anywhere else, that most of the time you don't even get a response. When you do go along, there are 30 or 40 other people there and an older woman on HAP is certainly not what the landlord is looking for. So Leila said that they're always really kind to her mum, but if a professional couple come in afterwards, they're likely to get the place. Yeah, and th- th- I, that's a real difficulty as well because there is a hierarchy in viewings for landlords, isn't there? They usually go for a professional couple, no children, no baggage, all the rest of it. Um, and they're on, you know, if, if somebody's on HAP, which I thought would be a sort of a secure source of income for a landlord, it doesn't seem to be something they want to engage with. I think it complicates things for them a bit. Um, what people were saying, like Fenor um, from the other family I was talking about, was saying that the landlords often kind of complain that they have to do paperwork or I'm, I'm not even sure what's involved, but I think there's it's a lot simpler for them to go with. And I think there's also, again, there's a stigma. There's a, there's a strange perception in Ireland that people who rent um, and particularly people who rent and need to need the help of government subsidy um, are somehow... Uh, somehow not to be trusted. Like there's some kind of weird old thing. I was I was just listening to podcasts earlier about um, in Vienna, I think something like 60% of the population uh, gets some sort of subsidy from the government. It's a very normal thing all over Europe. Um, in Ireland, it's been stigmatised and home ownership has been just put as a pinnacle for everything. We're going to hear from someone else you spoke to at the protest, Jessica Freed, who's been homeless since 2020. She's actually become quite an activist with Raise the Roof. Um, she's an actor. She's always been working. I've she's always, always rented, around. mostly because I could never access a mortgage. Although over, you can imagine, 30 plus years, I've paid the equivalent of it. Um, I went from rented place to rented place. It was always possible to find a place. Uh, never defaulted on rent, always paid my bills. Uh, The last place I lived, I lived for 15 years, was a house in Crumlin. Uh, For the last 10 years, I was a carer for my mother who lived with me because she had lost her vision. So I was on a carer's allowance and obviously I got whatever acting work I got and and we managed between, you know, my my work and her pension. We took in language students uh, to to make ends meet. The rents went up and up and up. It became almost impossible to pay the rent, but there was no choice. My mother died in, 20, uh, in 2018. 
I'm sorry. A to year hear that. later, yeah, I mean, it, you know, she had had a pretty tough time. Uh, I, the, the landlord gave me notice to quit within a year, and at that stage, there was nowhere to go. There was that the landlord gave me an excellent reference. I've never even had a chance to show that reference to anybody, because there's no, there, there's actually nowhere to go. And I've been couch surfing and living in in friends' spare rooms and near empty houses that are about to be sold since t- September of 2020. Uh, and this is not this this sort of phony war between landlords and tenants. It's not really about that. It's the system is dysfunctional. Landlords should never have been put in that position of being responsible for social housing. Certainly during the boom, landlords were not landlords, ordinary people were sold a lie, basically, a sort of an expectation and an entitlement of I'll buy a house, I'll do a buy to let, the banks will facilitate me and I'll make a living. This will supplement my pension. Now, I don't blame people for doing that at the time. But the rest of us having a roof overhead should not be mixed up with somebody else's pension plan. I actually think, and I don't, I know this sounds like hyperbole, but I actually think that the housing situation is going to be this generation's um, scandals uh, in terms of church scandals, uh, sexual abuse scandals, mother and baby homes, all these things that nobody, everybody pretended they didn't know about years ago that is just coming out. And it's just and people and we look back and say, how do we not see how do we not do anything about that? How did we not see that that was going on under our noses? I think the housing situation is going to be that in 20 years time. I really feel that strongly. Jessica, I'm interested to hear from somebody who is in the position that you're in. Just the everyday difficulties that you would encounter as a person who is relying on the goodness of friends to let mm-hmm. you stay with them. You know, you're, you've been in this sort of limbo for two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. Well, the daily difficulties and where I'll be, I have my things around me at the moment where I am, but I'm going to have to leave. I'll probably have to leave here in July, August. I will have to pack up everything and put it in storage. So I have to pay for storage. They always assume homeless people have nothing. You have no life anyway. So what would you need stuff for? And then day to day, I have to register with the homeless executive, the homeless uh, place in Parkgate Hall and every night ring around to see if there's a bed. Now, because I'm lucky enough, I have, God, I have the best of friends. Every single friend I have has done absolutely everything they could to support me in any way they could. If I ring up one night and there's no nothing in the homeless shelter, I can ring up a friend and say, can I bring my sleeping bag and sleep on your floor? But that is not the indignity of that. That is not a life. My friends are not responsible for me. You know, and it's not a market thing. If you imagine substituting the word food for housing and you talked about access to food, only certain people could have access to supermarkets. And you were told, so your friends must have a bit of food. Your fat, would you not go around and get a bit of food there? I mean, really, if you had had only saved your confirmation money, you'd have enough money to get into this supermarket. It, It makes no sense. It really makes no sense. Patrick, you spoke earlier about the stigma that's still associated with, you know, social housing or being homeless in Ireland. 
there'll be a cohort of people who look at certain groups of renters and say, ah, you know, they should have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got out of renting when they were younger. Yeah, and, and a lot of the people saying that did not pull themselves up by their bootstraps. A lot of their parents pulled them up by their bootstraps. There's an awful lot of privilege in this conversation and I am one of the people with privilege. I had help when I was buying my house um, from my parents and they were in a position to help me. And I think that an awful lot of the... There's a kind of old-fashioned moral argument about both home ownership and wealth and, and poverty. This idea that people somehow brought the situation to themselves. We have to lose that. And I think one of the things that's happening in Ireland more recently around housing is people are realising that is just not the case at all. It is. I, I think there's a problem now that's a product of how we've kind of mismanaged the whole market. So it became a bit of a norm that small landlords who invested for their pension or were, you know, like it's, it's unfair that it's come to a situation where people who are in danger of being made homeless are put on a parallel with people who might lose a little bit of their investment. I understand why people are upset that they're not getting what they hoped they would get. But I think there's also a rereading of our own constitution when it comes to property. Article 43 of the constitution, it acknowledges you have a right to property, but it also says that that right to property ought to be regulated by the principles of social justice. Jessica, when you were quoted in Patrick's article, I found it very interesting that, you know, you were like, I don't feel shame about this. This is not my failure. When there are people who might have said, why didn't you get a job that did allow you to buy a mortgage? Or, you know, what's your response to people? When oh, well, I mean, that's, I mean, I had, well, you, you count to 10, <laughs> you take a breath and you go, well, do you know what? The whole world is not made up of office workers and marriages with 2.2 children. You don't watch the telly. You don't go to concerts. You don't, you don't need artists. You don't need actors. You don't need musicians. You don't go to gigs. You don't. Everybody doesn't have this cookie cutter type of life. Even people that are not, forget about freelance artists like me, even people with sort of regular jobs don't always have the type of job that where there will be access to mortgage. And on that subject, you shouldn't need one. If I were lending money, somebody that could prove they had paid rent religiously for 10 years and proved that they were tax compliant, I wouldn't care if they were on social welfare. There's your mortgage. I can't bear lack of logic. when it, It's not even an emotional argument. It's a lack of logic. And it's people not wanting to see that they're only where they are because, you know, in 1962, their parents were able to buy a house for £2,000. And that was at a time when there was one salary, usually the man's, and the mother was at home with their, with their three dozen children, and they could pay the mortgage and a bog-standard job. Every one of us in our families, if you go back, had parents or grandparents who had access that's privilege. When I think of privilege, I don't think of privilege of money or big houses or cars. Or I think of privilege of access. And it's When you say access, do you mean access by virtue of the fact that you can't get a mortgage to own a home or access by through social housing? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Most of us work hard. Most of us are, are responsible with money. Most of us you know, do everything we're meant to do. But what does that matter? You jump up and down in the middle of the road and say, you know, I'm a hard worker. I'm this, I'm that. And I say, who cares? There's no access to anything. Mm. And then you're talked down to. 
by the government and very and people who are just clueless, as if you're feckless or lazy or you all want something for nothing. The reason the eviction ban came in is because an awful lot of people are going to be evicted without even emergency accommodation to go to. They haven't exactly fixed that in the five months since it's come in. And now we're in a similar situation again, although it's probably a bit worse because there's even more people. Um, I think Threshold estimates that by the end of the month, 2,000 people who will be evicted have contacted them they say that's not even, not everybody who's being evicted even contacts them. Uh, the RTB says there were 4,741 notices of termination, which are outstanding from July, August and September of last year. So the reality now is an awful lot of people and an awful lot of families are facing a situation where they have to leave where they live in the next month without anywhere to go. Coming up, Jack Horgan-Jones on the government's mitigation measures as it lifts the evictions ban. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Keeping or extending the ban isn't necessarily going to solve this crisis into the future. It's like making sweets free for children. It's fine for a little while, but ultimately detrimental to the greater need. Thank you, Deputy. Thank you, Deputy. Labour have interrupted every speaker here inside. Everyone, if no for someone will have the right, the first right of refusal in anyone, which is the vast majority. What I hear, if I can make my point, Deputy Breen, I listen to you. I listen to you with respect. You, I listen with you with respect. You need to listen to me. You probably object. You probably objected to more homes than any other member of Dáil Éireann. Um, so you probably have. You probably objected to more. I've never objected. I, You're not a mood shore anymore. You don't need to wag your finger at me there. Do you know what? This debate has been a disgrace. Jack Horgan-Jones, political reporter with the Irish Times. Those scenes in the Dáil on Wednesday, what did you make of it, first of all? 
Well, I mean, it was certainly very charged, Aideen. Um, the housing crisis and the political debate around it and the debate about the proper and correct policy approach to, to solving it is part of the political permafrost. Because this government has been so preoccupied with other crises, namely the pandemic, but also uh, the, the war in Ukraine, the associated fallout, uh, the impact on inflation and the cost of living crisis, they have made life more difficult for the government in terms of trying to make good on its housing targets. Now, obviously, the government would turn around and say, we beat our housing targets last year. And that is true. But they didn't meet their social housing targets. And it looks like they're going to have a hell of a job to meet their housing targets this year. There's also a broadly acknowledged truth that the, the targets are set too low. So there's an, an enormous mountain to climb. And all of that is the kind of the background drumbeat of bad news around housing that was in place when the government came to make this decision around the lifting of the eviction ban. The opposition, I think, has correctly diagnosed that this is uh, an immediate problem for the government. And they have been trying to kind of, not necessarily with with any realistic prospect of, of bringing down the government, but to kind of probe the government for weakness, to see if this is a new soft underbelly Uh, that the coalition faces in 2023. And they've done that through this series of now three doll votes that the government has won and won quite comfortably, but has also come at a cost. It's easy for the opposition to make hay with it because it's so serious. I guess when you were talking about, you know, normal people then looking in on leaders' questions, it's all they see is political point scoring when they're about to lose their home. Um, I guess it seems a bit tone deaf, maybe. Um, What's been the government's defence for lifting the ban today? It's largely an intellectual rather than a, an emotional defence. So they, they think that they have good reason for doing this. Their concern is that in extending it, they would first of all have to do so for a period of, of up to two years. They felt that such a long extension would effectively warp the private tenancy market would be seen as a, and this is the language taken from their own cabinet memo, would be seen as a betrayal of trust uh, by the, the landlord uh, sector or by the by the private rental sector um, and would lead to more and more landlords effectively selling up. The problem with that, I suppose, is, you know, one, they haven't clearly articulated the evidence base for that. They have offered little bits here and there about, you know, the number of landlords that were leaving the market. But I haven't seen any kind of convincing modeling that they've done, which you would think would underpin such a substantial decision. And, and you know, this has been a point that the opposition has made. But perhaps more importantly, they haven't been able to win the emotional or the political argument. They haven't been able to confidently or convincingly, I suppose, confront the core charge that the opposition has laid at their, at their door, which is that this is a decision made in the interests of a small group of people, a small group of insiders, i.e. landlords and property owners, at the expense of a large group of, of outsiders, of people who are being placed in a state of penury and being you know, effectively at the sharp end forced into a very haphazard existence you know, characterised by the emergence of, of all those those human interest stories. And, and the risk, I suppose, for the government is that that perception gets embedded and sticks. With the, with the ban being lifted, the government's been accused of having no plan B. What measures are in place? You know, they've been talking about tenants in situ sales and selling to, to local authorities. 
So I think that this is another one of the really damaging uh, aspects of this for the government because I think that 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 criticism is a valid one. Uh, they had six months to work on policies. Um, you know, they don't seem to have arrived on the threshold of the ban or of the decision to lift the ban with many or any fully formed ideas about what they were going to do to mitigate it. And when you look at a lot of the the mitigations that they offered, it's increased targets that were already to policies that were already in place. So they talk about how they increased social housing acquisitions, how they brought a lot of new homes on stream in the last quarter, you know, new builds and new leases and more social housing and all the rest of it. All of these, of course, are important, but they're already happening. The really new stuff is this backstop or or first refusal policy. It's kind of, it's unclear as to whether it's one policy or kind of two related policies. And I'll just briefly describe them because they are, they are a little bit complex. The first part of it is, is this idea of first refusal. This uh, would suggest that if someone is in receipt of an eviction notice and, and that the landlord intends to sell the home, that they will be given a first refusal, an option to buy. Now, that needs legislation. So it's not going to be ready probably until, I mean, at the very earliest after the Easter break. There's a lot of questions over exactly how that will work in practice. So, for example, will it be possible to negotiate a price within that, right? Uh, Some indications that we got from government last week were that at the moment the thinking is, that the policy direction is, that... Both parties will be able to obtain an independent valuation and perhaps where there's a difference between the two, that provides for the space for negotiation. But I think there's a much bigger problem. And despite the fact that people in government have sworn to me that, you know, the Attorney General has raised no constitutional issues on this, I find it hard to imagine if if you are a landlord, if you're a property owner, given the primacy afforded to property rights in the Constitution, if you don't want to engage with this process... If you say, look, I want to put my property on the open market and I want to seek a bidding war, I mean, you may be right, wrong or indifferent as to whether you get a higher price arising from that process versus the first refusal process. But it's kind of your it's kind of your choice, I would think. So on the face of it, like, I don't see how that circle can be squared. The other part of it is termed a backstop. So it's designed to work in sequence with the first refusal policy in that if the tenant doesn't have the money or the wherewithal to purchase the home, then a backstop kind of kicks in and a local authority or an approved housing body can come in and purchase on the behalf of the tenant, maintain the tenancy, switch them into what's known as a a cost rental agreement, which is a new tenancy type that the government has introduced and is seeking to grow. And it would be on the same or better terms. And generally, cost rental is seen as quite a good deal because the the rent that's charged is linked to the the cost of acquiring or providing the home as opposed to building in a a profit margin. So it's seen as a a cheaper way of, of, of achieving a tenancy. Confusingly, they've said that the backstop is going to be ready first. So the backstop doesn't require legislation. So they're saying that's going to be brought in on an administrative basis um, from the 1st of April. I think there's open questions on exactly, you know, how this is going to work. So like there's income limits associated with eligibility for cost rental. They're going to put them up. But are they still going to apply? Uh, you know, what about the value of the home? If you're a 
tech executive, you know, earning 200,000 euros a year and you live in a two million euro penthouse down in the Keys in Dublin. If you're in receipt of a of notice to quit, all of a sudden is the state going to come in and, and, and buy that apartment and keep you in the manner to which you become accustomed? Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would suspect not. I would, I would strongly suspect not. But how do you account for that within the functioning of the scheme? It seems that there's, there's a lot of complexity there as well. And, and also perhaps a sliver of a perverse uh, incentive for someone to want to be evicted because cost rental is such an infinitely preferable tenure type to private rental tendencies. Would you not want to be in receipt of a, of a notice to quit if all of a sudden the state comes in, purchases the, the property and you end up in a, effectively what would kind of be an indefinite tenure and a cheaper rent? So, you know, there's, there's an awful lot there that strikes me needs to be worked out. And this needs to work in the short term, because what is going to happen is that these notices to quit are going to crystallize and, you know, people are going to be faced with evictions and those numbers are going to start ticking up. The answer to all these things is supply. But as we said at the top of, of this discussion, the, the headwinds to, to meeting targets are, are pretty severe and it's a potentially destabilizing thing. I was talking to one person last week, I said this on the Inside Politics podcast last Friday, and they, they were saying that they hadn't seen the offices of the leaders this rattled before in the lifetime of the government. And, you know, this is a government that has been through some kind of bone-shaking occurrences. So that in and of itself, look, it's only one person's view, but nonetheless, it shouldn't be discounted. That in and of itself is, is, is pretty important, I would argue. I'm lucky because I'm healthy. I'm, I'm mentally and, and physically fit for the moment. I mean, I, and particularly get towards old age. I mean, in Patrick's article, there's a woman of 80. I mean, my parents are dead. There's no family home, but I'm better off than some. I was my mother's care for 10 years. Every day, I thank God she died when she did. Now, when you're in a situation where you are thanking God that your dearly loved parent is dead, so they wouldn't have to suffer what... I'm suffering now, I wouldn't have to be dealing with that. There is something seriously wrong. And again, people care. It's not that they want people to be homeless, but a lot of people can't deal with it. They can't get wrap their head around it. And I never force it on anybody. I never force the conversation on anybody because I know they'll come to it at some point. But they're going to have to come to it. It's no longer an option to put your head in the sand and pretend it has nothing to do with you. Because we all have to live. You don't have a roof over your head. You're going to die in the road. And that is not acceptable in, in, in the 21st century. It just isn't. That's it for today. My thanks to Jessica Freed, Patrick Frayne and Jack Horgan-Jones. For full access to Irish Times journalism, go to irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. This episode was produced by me, Aideen Finnegan. In the News will be back on Monday. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.